The road south across the Arkansas River was straight, and only took seconds for the eye to travel its length across the prairie. There really was no cover, just rolling hills and nothing to block the view. On the plains, there were times in which Old Man Winter refused to give up without a fight. Spring would ride in on a gentle breeze, unhindered by any hill. All that punctuated our travel into the frontier was long strands of clouds being dragged across the sky by the wind. There was never a more favorable measure of men in the world. Each man was Simon, pure and happier than a lark to venture out into the Texas Panhandle. All were in rugged health, none in need, most habituated to the hardships of life in the wilderness. Each poised that he could take care of himself, sure of the help of his comrades in an emergency, and everybody was cheerful and proud as could be. Each man could stand the gaff and found someone they could ride the river with. If there was care of any kind, it was too light to be felt. Each man had provided himself with a saddled horse. I was never without one. The best that money could buy in that country. All the wagons were heavily loaded, which compelled us to drive at easy stages. Two men whom I had known for some time, by the name of Ed Jones and Joe Plummer, drove the freighters directly behind us. A.C. Myers hired them both to pull his freight for him. Both men were buffalo hunters turned merchants. They were noted for their comings and goings between Dodge City and the Texas Panhandle country. Jones and Plummer had traveled the route so many times hauling products to Dodge City that they created a rut trail. Soon, many of the buffalo hunters followed this trail down to the Canadian River and on to Fort Elliott. The trail became so popular that many of us who made the trip regularly named it the Jones and Plummer Trail. I did not know much about Joe Plummer. But Edward Jones and I kept good company over the years out on the plains. Edward Jones first entered the territory by being hired out to a Wisconsin firm to hunt and ship buffalo hides to the leather-making factories. With his contract in hand, he came to Kansas in 1872. Jones, of English descent, turned out to be a hard customer. I guess mostly because he became known by many of us as Dirty Face Ed. I'm thinking he did not care much for his moniker. It did not take Jones long to acquire his moniker, as he got into a ruckus with an Indian two months after his arrival in Dodge City. During the ruckus, that Indian fired a gun so close to his face that his appearance became permanently marked by powder burns. After that day and ever since, he became known as Dirty Face Ed. His reputation and image followed him as being fearless, and one of the most self-reliant hunters on the plains. If Dirty Face Ed had ever known failure in his life, it didn't show. Everything from the way he held himself to the way he spoke made him well known as a confident man among the buffalo hunters. My thoughts began to wonder about this fellow, Dirty Face Ed, when Masterson rounded the wagon and pulled up next to me. Hey, Billy Dixon, shouted Masterson. I looked over at Masterson. Below the brim of his hat, I could see his unmoving eyes. He held a big grin in place that showed almost every tooth. Neither moved, not the eyeballs, not the stretched thin lips. With a wide grin spread over Masterson's face, it meant something very bad was about to happen, or something impractical. I knew Masterson and his thinking. Most of the time, he was thinking about the kind of hoax he was going to pull on a man. Masterson was a prankster. He held no bones about the idea of honey-fuggling a man's personality into a hog-killing of a time. 
What's on your mind, Masterson? I asked. Well, Dixon, you know those two fellers behind us? Asked Masterson. Yep, I replied. If you're thinking about pulling a joke on Plummer and Jones, I wouldn't advise it. That Jones feller has no liking to playfulness. I was once told that Jones was driving a 12-mule team down to Palo Duro on a dark night when someone yelled, You halt! Old Jones said, You go to hell, you son of a bitch, and kept going. That feller never said another word. No, I wasn't thinking about a joke, replied Masterson. Although I have plenty of them to foster out here just to break the boredom. Masterson paused and smiled. I was thinking more about our nightly entertainment. Both of those boys play a grand fiddle. Maybe we can convince them to strike up a tune for us this evening. Even though Plummer and Jones are both fiddlers of a sort and exchanged instruments on occasion, I replied, I just wouldn't fiddle with them anyway. I haven't known you to be much of a dancer. Well, you're right about that, Billy. I'm not much of a dancer, lest I have a pretty girl next to me. Then I can really wing up a fandango, said Masterson. But Mike McCabe likes to play to the gallery and beat the Dutch with his dancing. McCabe is worth a whole night of entertainment once he gets going on that scamper juice. Now what about old Dirty Face Ed? Masterson asked. I know he's good at dealing with horse thieves, I replied. It's his custom on the trail to turn his mules loose at night by first making certain his saddle horse is secured to a wagon wheel. Watch what he does tonight at our first camp. He knows those mule of his won't stray far from camp. What does that have to do with dealing with a horse thief? asked Masterson. You remember last night, right before we pulled out of Dodge, how Dirty Face Ed announced that he would do if he ever lost a mule? I said. Yeah, replied Masterson. Dirty Face said in a voice that all could hear that he wouldn't hunt his mules if they were stolen. Instead, he'd hunt down the men who stole them. Dirty Face Ed made that announcement before, I said. In fact, he makes that announcement every time he leaves a place. Now why would he say that, do that, asked Masterson, unless it must have worked out for him one time. Well, it did, I replied. On one of the early trips south from Dodge, his mules were stolen. He was so upset about the thievery that he returned to Dodge on the next day. When Ed arrived, he went directly to Hanrahan's. Well, go on, said Masterson, who rode next to me. I could tell Masterson was interested in my story by the intense look on his face. He shifted his weight to the inside of his saddle and dug his heel into the horse. Masterson's horse picked up pace next to mine in perfect rhythm, ducking his head in and bouncing toward the inside of the wagon. While Dirty Face Ed was in Hanrahan's saloon, he purchased a bottle of whiskey and announced that a gang of thieves had taken his mules, I said. Dirty Face told everyone in the saloon that he was not going to hunt down the mules. Instead, he'd take his buffalo gun and hunt down four thieving men. He called out each man by their first and last names. How did Dirty Face Ed know who took the mules? asked Masterson. I'm not sure, I replied. Dirty Face apparently made believers of the horse thieves. The next night, the leader of the gang sent one of the men back, not only with the mules, but with an apology a buckskin, and a money bag as well. The man who brought the mules back said, I brought you a hundred dollars. The boys gave it to me to pay the damages. We got to Crooked Creek the first day out of Dodge. 
We ate like wolves and could have digested a dry buffalo hide with the hair on it. Spring was on the way, and the air was light and buoyant, making the days and nights an endless delight. No more the bare sticks that told of winter's magic came the green flags, the parade of spring in bright bloom. The chorus of the skies called forth the promise of the earth and sunshine combined. Best of all was when we camped at night, music and the telling of tales. In the party were many veterans of the Civil War with endless stories of desperate battles that were much to our liking. Drinking in the pure, fresh air of the plains, we rolled from our blankets every morning, clear-headed and ready for any enterprise. Just to feel oneself living in that country was a joy. We heard nothing and cared nothing about politics. It made little difference to us who was President of the United States. We worked hard, had enough money for our everyday needs, and we were happy. Happier, perhaps, than we ever were in later years. Youth probably had much to do with our contentment. The second day's travel brought us to the Cimarron River, and here we stopped at one of my old campgrounds. The Cimarron River is a sleeping rattler. It lies across the land in smooth, seductive curves, beautiful in the morning light, cold and innocuous. Yet it hides a myriad of dangers, its swift undertow being the least of our concerns. Masterson and I sat on our horses looking out over the Cimarron River. It looks as if we've reached the deadline, I said. Beyond the banks of this river is hostile Indian country. Masterson pulled back his shoulders, took a saddle stretch, and leaned forward. I've heard of this place, replied Masterson. The Cimarron is a Spanish word, meaning outcast, outlaw, or wanderer. It's a name sometimes applied in Spanish-speaking countries to a steer that wanders away from the herd and ranges alone, wild and intractable. The Cimarron is true to its name, then, I replied. I can only say the Cimarron is commonly regarded as one of the most dangerous streams in the Southwest. Its width often is three or four hundred yards. The current deceptively swift, strong, deep, and murky. It's filled to the brim with sand and through the sand is an underflow. From the bank of the river where Masterson and I sat, he and I both wondered about the best point of crossing. The quicksand of the Cimarron is notorious, I said. No crossing is ever permanently safe. The sand grips like a vice and the river sucks down and buries all that it touches. Trees, wagons, horses, cattle, and men alike. If the latter should be too weak to extricate themselves. Masterson leaned out over the top of his horse and looked puzzled. He then pointed in the direction of a bend in the river. What's that white substance peering out from underneath the current, he asked. Those are the remains of buffalo, I replied. In the old days, I continued, countless buffaloes bogged down and disappeared beneath the sands of this here river. The swift current, especially in the spring months, frequently uncovers the dismembered skeletons of the buffalo. This is when the river is in flood. After a rise, the Cimarron is particularly dangerous. As it boils and rolls along, the river loosens and hurls forward. I'm astonished by the power of this river, exclaimed Masterson. A man could quickly find himself pulled down by the current. Not only can the current be troublesome, but the increasing weight of sand that lodges in a man's clothes may cause swimming to become difficult and finally impossible. Many a wagon, mule, and sometimes a man has suffered with tremendous exertion 
Well, crossing this here river, I replied. In the breaks of the Cimarron, we had the hardest kind of pulling, as there was lots of sand and the country rough. The fourth day brought us to the Beaver, the central prong of the North Canadian, its other branch being Wolf Creek. Both the Beaver and Wolf Creek unite to Camp Supply, the point to which I had helped haul supplies for the Custer expedition with the outfit of mules that stampeded in harness as we were returning to Fort Hayes. This time we struck the Palo Duro at its mouth where there was plenty of water. Here we camped and then moved into the Panhandle of Texas. Determined that we would keep moving until we found the best buffalo country, we went south from the Paladero and struck Moores Creek at its source, following this stream to the South Canadian River, where we camped. Here we were disappointed in not finding the grass better. There was hardly enough grass for our stock. We had lots of fun skylarking in our camp on Moores Creek, but spring was coming on and it was our wish to establish a permanent camp at the best possible place. Unconsciously, we were drawn to that place as other men, long, long before us, had been brought, and which we reached by pulling right down the river bottom, about 12 miles to west Adobe Walls Creek. The latter is a beautiful stream, clear and swift. About a mile from its mouth stood the old ruins of the original Adobe Walls. Here we stopped and camped for the night. I had heard of these ruins ever since I had been in the Plains country. They were of great interest to us. Masterson was curious about the history of this place, so he convinced me to carefully examine these old adobe structures. The next morning, Masterson, along with Billy Tyler and I, rode down into the valley. Masterson, who rode beside me, was the first to see the red clay structures. The sun, somewhat below the horizon, gave off an orange hue. The low sun caused the red clay structures to sparkle. Masterson, noting the effect from the sun, began to wonder about this place. What man in such a far-off day had ventured to establish themselves here? And why had they done so? Masterson asked. The three of us pulled up on our reins and looked over the valley to take a pause and wonder upon these ancient structures. Parts of walls were still standing, some being four or five feet high. The adobe bricks were in an excellent state of preservation. Adobe Walls was a place known to older Comanches, I replied. In 1864, a young frontiersman and his cohorts fought off a Comanche war party there. The white leader, Kit Carson, later became known for his deeds as the Army Chief of Scouts. The three of us observed the morning sky. Mellow blues and pinks blurred together in a silver mist to create a gorgeous scene. I could tell this strange new world was drowning Masterson in curiosity. He was not acquainted with the history of the place. He wanted to know more. Let's take a closer look, Masterson requested. Masterson's invitation gave Billy the idea to make a full gallop charge on the place. Down Billy went with a Comanche yelp, and Masterson and I followed. As we approached the adobe walls, the yellow shining sun started rising from the ground. The morning sun filled the sky with expansive colors of red and splashed the clouds with endless rays of pink. It was bright and absorbing, for its rays highlighted the age-old ruins inviting us to explore deep within its historical fractures. Once we reached the ruins, 
We dismounted with reins in hand and horses beside us. We ambled into the collapsed structures. How old are these ruins? Masterson asked. Billy, standing next to me, quickly said, Older than my grandfather. That's what I figure. All I can say about my knowledge of the place is what I learned from General Hatch, I replied. When I served under General Hatch as an Indian scout at Fort Elliott, Texas, I asked the general the same question, and we fell into a discussion about the Adobe Walls country. He told me that he passed up the Canadian in 1848, with a regiment of dragoons going out west, and stopped to examine these ruins. Hatch said that Major Bent's son, George Bent, made this statement to him. Bent and company built Adobe Walls, as it is called. Hatch couldn't find out when it was built. All he knew was that it was built by a trading post to trade with Comanches, Kiowas, and Prairie Apaches. Bent and company traded for horses and mules from the Indians. The post wasn't occupied in winter, as the company did not trade for buffalo robes, as the trading post was too far from Bent's Fort on the Arkansas River to haul the hides. Well, there you have it, said Billy. Back in 48, these guys were smart enough to recognize that they were too far out to do any hide business. Now look at us, way out here hunting buffalo. The sunlight came all at once. Not a steady dawn or a trickle of rays. It came like the switching on, violent and harsh. Masterson brought his hand over his eyes to shield from the unwelcome intruder. Well, Billy, you might be right about being out so far, replied Masterson. And our adventure might be a little unsettling to you. Yet I know of no better company than whom we have mustered up among us. Ignoring Tyler's statement, I looked back over to Masterson as to finish my story. Well, Masterson, I said, even though it be true that old adobe walls was established by Major William Bent and his associates, a tradition remains that they merely seized upon a site that had been occupied at even earlier day by men of whom nothing is known, save that they are believed to have come from the Spanish settlements in New Mexico. Billy grumbled with a sigh, then held out his horse's reins. Say, can one of you take hold of my horse? asked Billy in a downturned tone of voice. I gotta take leave. Billy handed over the reins to Masterson and disappeared behind an adobe structure. Hey, Billy, you better watch what you're aiming at, I warned. You know them rattlers are not so fond of yeller extractions. Don't hang fire too long in there. Masterson smiled and said, Oh, that's rich. Only a few seconds passed before we heard Billy yelling incomprehensible sounds behind the wall. Hey, Masterson! Dixon! Billy yelled with excitement. I found something! Come here and look! When I entered the ruins, I saw a composition of paintings, which looked familiar to me. My eyes moved along the walls of adobe from place to place, unable to decide what each picture represented. The stroke lines were bold, and the images looked to be from a war or a battle. The images told a story, all condensed onto a single page. What I saw was a series of paintings, with each idea given time and space to be expressed, to communicate the meaning that was a timeline of history. Then it dawned on me. The painting is Ute, I said. A ray of the morning sun entered the shadows of the ruins and danced on every color of precise lines, taking a mosaic form. The images are telling the story of the Battle of Adobe Walls, I waved to Masterson and Tyler to take a closer look. The Utes are mountain Indians and are known for their art, I said. They hated the Plains Indians. 
They had long been at war with the Comanches, the Kiowas, the Cheyennes, and Arapahoes. So in 1864, the Utes joined an expedition commanded by Kit Carson. The expedition was organized to punish the Comanches and Kiowas for their raids on the Santa Fe Trail. Pointing up to the left-hand corner of the wall was a ray of morning sun that magnified an etched drawing of a wagon train. I think this part of the drawing shows the trail of the government wagons that settlers traveled from the Missouri River through central and southern Kansas up along the Arkansas River and then southwest across the desert for Santa Fe or New Mexico. I think you're right, I replied. From what I see painted on the wall, it's becoming clear to me. The painting tells the story of the Battle of Adobe Walls. The symbol of arrows pointed in different directions at the South Canadian River is a symbol of war. The triangle symbols must be camp symbol, said Masterson, as he pointed to a place on the drawing. There must have been several camps in the area. That would mean a large military force would need to be organized to take down that many Comanches and Kiowa warriors. The Allied Comanches and Kiowas were supposed to be encamped for the winter somewhere down the South Canadian River in the northern part of the Texas Panhandle. This was a great winter resort for them and their friends, I replied. As I remember correctly, Carlton directed Kit Carson to take 450 men and strike the raiders in the northeast. Of the 450, 100 were to be Indian scouts from the Utes. These Utes were friendly to the Americans. Kit Carson had been their government agent. They called him Father Kit. Hey, what do these three symbols mean? Asked Tyler, pointing to the three circles with squiggle line painted underneath. The Utes marked the seasons by a turning of the sun, I replied. Those three symbols mark the beginning of December and the onset of winter. Notice on the drawing what looks to be a white soldier symbol, I said. The painting shows figures wearing hats. The saddlebags symbolize the journey. The march down the north side of the South Canadian must have been slow, Masterson said. The painting shows two cannons and from the marking, many wagons were ahead of the troops with the cannons far behind. That is true, Masterson, I said. I was once told this story from a Ute scout who was on the expedition, I replied. The Ute scout said the infantry trudged in deep snow. The gunners and two 12-pounder howitzers rolled on small wheels behind tugging horses. The scout told me that there were as many as 27 wagons and an ambulance. I paused a second to refresh my thoughts. From what I remember, it took Colonel Carson 13 days in covering 170 miles. Two of the days he had been held up by snow. The winter of 64 was very snowy. The Kiowas named it Muddy Traveling Winter. Now what do you think this means, asked Billy. Billy pointed to several stick figures on the wall painting. Are these symbols of people running around a fire? Looks like they're hot to a trot. Native American Indians were deeply spiritual people, I replied. They believe in a spiritual connection with nature. These beliefs were reflected in the various symbols they used, such as the dancer symbol. The drawing illustrates what must have happened on an overnight stop on the south side of the Canadian River. It looks as if the Utes are having a war dance. I pointed to an enclosure symbol, which appeared on the drawing 13 times. The enclosure symbol is set aside for a special event. A ceremonial dance or a ritual, I said. You could have fooled me, Tyler replied. It looks to me like them Indians are in a bender or a bosh doing the fandango and a prairie plunder. Masterson took a side chuckle at Tyler's words while I continued my story. 
This Ute scout who had been with Carson told me every night after camp was made the Utes held a war dance. They kept the dance up almost until morning. They must have made a lot of noise since about 50 Utes made up the expedition. The soldiers complained that nobody could sleep amidst all that howling and thumping, but the Indians did not care. They danced and grew strong celebrating the scalps that they were going to take. The morning sun is two fists high, said Billy. I'm getting a little hungry. Besides, Mike is back at camp holding down all our belongings. I'm sure he'll be in a stomper when we return. You're right, Billy, said Masterson. It's time to get back to camp and pull up stakes. We're not going to find Buffalo by looking at these Ute paintings. We can finish this story tonight around the campfire. Boys, you go right ahead. I'm going to go further south out on the range to see if any of the herds have arrived, I said. I'll meet you at camp tonight. We mounted our horses. Billy Tyler and Masterson returned to camp, and I rode south to further explore the Adobe Walls country. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes Podcast or at wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. We would like to conclude our show by reminding our listeners to check out our up-and-coming digital bookstore by visiting boothillproductions.com and select Publications. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can learn more about the legends of Dodge City by visiting our website at worldfamousgunfighters.com or visit us at boothillproductions.com. 